And here we are yet again appearing in your feed a few days late to allow our London-based marketing team to take some time off to celebrate the Platinum Jubilee. And there's nothing like some pomp and ceremony to get the collective heart of our London office pumping. But we're here nonetheless, and the product remains the same, a weekly podcast covering the top stories in regulatory affairs with the assistance of MLEX's team of reporters around the world. My name is James Paniki. I'm a senior editor with our Asia-Pacific team, and it's great to have your company. Now, in just over 10 minutes' time, we'll bring you the incredible story of Swiss mining and commodities company Glencore, which has agreed to pay a fine of $1 billion US dollars for having paid over $100 million in bribes to officials in Africa and South America. It's a whopping amount, but then again, if anyone can afford it, it's Glencore. Our reporters Martin Coyle and Samuel Rubenfeld are standing by on either side of the Atlantic to walk us through this incredible story of bribery, corruption and ongoing regulatory risk. But speaking of billions of dollars, what are we to make of Broadcom's $61 billion buyout of California-based cloud giant VMware? Well, as it turns out, we're not the only ones pondering that question. Regulators in both the EU and the US are set to grapple with some really tough M&A questions, with one eye firmly on the potential for the deal affecting innovation. Plus, Broadcom. I mean, where have we heard that name before? Yes, the California-based semiconductor company is no stranger to the merger spotlight. Luckily for us, our EU-based reporter Natalie McNeilis is about to join us. She's the co-author of a fine piece of MLEX analysis that brings some perspective to Broadcom's play for VMware, which is a company that invented virtualization software. So, Natalie, hello. Uh, let's start by getting a sense of what you're expecting on the regulatory horizon as a result of this deal. Well, I think these days the regulatory climate is really pretty harsh for big tech companies. I think that's something we've talked about before. And you can pretty much expect when you see these kind of you know dollar values and when you you know you see billions you can pretty much expect that it's going to get some serious scrutiny from the regulators. For this one, I'd expect tough merger control, certainly in the United States, in the EU, the UK, and probably China too. To be honest, it's also complicated by the fact that this is Broadcom. It's a company that just really doesn't have the best uh, reputation with the antitrust authorities around the world. I mean, If you think through some of the recent, just recent examples, you have like January 2022, you got Broadcom being the, you know, Korea opens an investigation over um, some allegations about smartphone manufacturers like being like Samsung being like coerced into signing long term contracts for um, certain chips. Uh, You have things happening in the United States. It was back in uh, November that the FTC just settled, they finally reached a settlement with Broadcom on charges about semiconductor components that they were using in set-top boxes. And in the EU, and so you see we sort of have instances in every jurisdiction. So you've got Korea, you've got the United States in the EU in October 2020. Broadcom settled a case about sales practices for its modem chips and you know just agreed that they would no longer hold 
come, you know, their customers to exclusivity arrangements or leverage and, you know, for their systems on a chip. And what was also kind of interesting about that example in the EU was that for the first time in 20 years, the EU used its ability to impose interim measures, which was, you know, something they hadn't done in decades. But you could see that they just were not going to let Broadcom squeeze its customers even one more day. So just to say that this is Broadcom and Broadcom can expect that it's going to have to really get through a pretty, you know, suspicious regulator, suspicious set of regulators. And of course, Broadcom is the Broadcom that we know from its failed uh, bid to take over rival chipmaker Qualcomm. Uh, tell me something about that and, and how that feeds into it. I mean, I think that that, is, that uh, deal was had some um, characteristics that were a bit different in the sense that at that point, Broadcom was still headquartered in Singapore. And so the reason that that deal fell through was on national security grounds. It was more of a, a sort of a Trump um, resistance to a U.S., a big, important U.S. digital company, Qualcomm, being taken over by a foreign uh, company, an Asian one. Um, but since then, Broadcom has, you know, repatriated itself and is now a U.S. company. So I think those same issues aren't likely to arise. Yet, I think the point you make is true that Broadcom just knows only too well that, you know, that the regulator can crush its dreams because it was ready to pay $130 billion for Qualcomm and it all fell through on, you know, regulatory resistance. So what do you think the regulators' objections will be this time? I think that they, you know, this is not a case that has a sort of immediate red flags. It doesn't raise these immediate a sort of antitrust red flags for me. And that's mainly because the companies don't compete head to head. You have Broadcom, it makes semiconductors. It does also have a software business, but VMware makes a software that it allows customers with data centers to sort of move their data around without being tied to a particular platform, uh, not tied to you know theirs or one of the cloud providers. So that's not what Qualcomm does. And so combining the two isn't going to really create a concentration on any particular market. And that's the kind of horizontal issue that merger control regulators are really worried about. Another concern that we've, we've talked about in other cases as well is vertical concerns. But this one is also not really, it doesn't really have the, the trappings of a real vertical case because VMware doesn't really make any components of Broadcom products. I think that Broadcom's competitors are likely to not like this deal, they are probably going to say, well, we need to be able to cooperate with VMware to make uh, our products compatible with its software. And they don't want to let Broadcom have control of what they think of as a, sort of an essential gateway to the data center market. So I, I think that you might have some customer resistance, but they won't really have the kind of theories of harm that you would expect to see in a merger control case. I mean, I thought when I first heard about this deal, it made me think about the NVIDIA ARM just because there were some, you know, concerns raised about the fact that in NVIDIA ARM, that ARM was kind of a neutral party and that it was willing to do business with, with everyone and NVIDIA's competitors liked that. Here, I also heard some input like, 
we like that VMware is is neutral. We don't like that Broadcom would capture VMware. Um, so it had some of the same language that I saw in the NVIDIA ARM case. Yet this case doesn't have the same clear vertical issues that that case had. Now, this seems to be a bit of a key, right? So the, the, the reaction of the market to a deal. Tell me something about that. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely true that and I recently I just was at a um, at a conference earlier this week where uh, Guillaume Loriot spoke. He's the, the head of mergers at the he's the head honcho of, uh, in charge of mergers at the European Commission. And uh, he in many in many aspects of his speech, he reminded us that they listen very much to the market and they consider it really important to have a deep understanding of the market and listen to you know what they're hearing from market tests. And he said, for example, he was talking about merger remedies and what would be convincing to them and what would be a, a no-go. And he said, like uh, he was saying, for example, they just won a case in the European court, Wieland uh, Werkt, uh, who wanted to buy the copper business of its competitor, Arubus. And they offered all kinds of remedies. They offered them, you know, many different types of remedies, three times, I think. And the commission ultimately decided that it just was a no-go. The way that Loriot explained this was he said, you know, the market told us what they're offering is just not going to fly. And we listened and we prohibited it. Then he said, but on the flip side, the market told the commission and there, there was a construction equipment uh, case, which was the merger of cargo tech and Kona cranes. And in that case, they offered remedies. The commission market tested those remedies and the market came back and said, you know, I think that'll work. It looks pretty good. And so the commission approved the deal. And what I was really struck by in listening to Loriot was that how key it was with how the market reacts. And I would say that that's going to be a really key factor in this case, at least in the EU, is how much Broadcom's competitors really come out and oppose this deal or don't. And that reminds me really of another case where we got all excited and we thought it was going to be a big, uh, a big review. It was when IBM took over this open source software company, Red Hat. It was a $34 billion deal. And we thought, oh, it's all about the cloud. And we had really our antenna up waiting for, for the big controversy to, to begin. But no matter how much we tried to find opponents, we just didn't find anybody who wanted to, who wanted to step out in, in um, opposition to the deal. And the, the deal didn't even get an in-depth Look, I mean, they did do a really long pre-notification, but it got an unconditional approval in the first phase. So I think at this early stage, it remains to be seen how up in arms Broadcom's competitors are going to be. And I really think that's going to be key. We're going to that will determine whether or not um, the EU really digs in. And are there any other issues that we need to be aware of that you expect to see in this review, Natalie? Uh, well, another one that comes to mind, especially when you're talking about the EU, is innovation. Uh, this is really a focus, some people even say an obsession of the EU. Ever since the sort of big agrochemical mergers in, the, in 2017, 2018, when you had Dow DuPont merging, when you had Bayer Monsanto merging, um, the commission really honed in on this um, theory of innovation. 
And they seem to really feel that they have kind of not only a right, but a duty to intervene when a deal would result in reduced innovation. And that's, for example, that's an issue that we're seeing in this very contentious uh, ongoing review right now of Illumina's um, takeover of Grail. That's this um, gene sequencing uh, company, Illumina, that is buying up a, a sort of small startup that's discovered a very innovative cancer uh, test, blood test. And Illumina says, hey, you know, let us help Grail speed this product. It's a life-saving, you know, groundbreaking cancer test to market. But the EU is saying, wait a minute, you know, gene sequencing is really the key technology to making sort of groundbreaking discoveries in in the detection, the prevention, the curing of cancer. And it's a it's worried and it's listening to complainants that are saying, you know, okay, yes, um, maybe Grail doesn't have any competitors right now, that you know, there's not much potential competition out there to protect right now. But if you allow Illumina to take over Grail, maybe it will so much uh, stop innovation that, you know, we won't get any new cancer tests. This is a real, you know, focus of the of the commission. So I think, sim- okay, similarly, this is not an, a life or death deal that we're talking about here in the software, <laughs> in the cloud software. But VMware is really known as a kind of a pioneer in this uh, virtualization. It was the first company to virtualize the x86 architecture. So this is the architecture that defines how a processor handles and executes uh, different instructions that are passed from the operating system and the software programs. It's a bit more, you know, technical than I can really explain, but <laughs> it has a reputation. <laughs> it has a reputation of being really um, a pioneer. And there's a worry that once Broadcom owns VMware, it'll slash the company's R&D budget, it'll shut down that sort of innovative spirit, it'll lower costs and raise prices. And, you know, VMware does seem to have a pretty high market shares for what it does. And so there's potential for abusing that market power. You know, so you could imagine that there's going to be some skepticism, some reluctance on the part of antitrust regulators. So, Natalie, what kind of concerns would regulators have uh, about what Broadcom might have in mind? What, uh, what, what would be the focus of their concerns? Well, I think their reflex might be to worry that Broadcom might be able to sort of bundle products, leverage customers' need for the VMware offerings, you know, to force them to buy other things from Broadcom. But the thing is that, you know, nobody knows whether Broadcom would do that, whether it would want to. I mean, uh, there's a whole argument that why would it want to, you know, jeopardize, uh, you know, $100,000 software packages for to be able to sell a few more $300 chips, you know. So, uh, but an even bigger question about that is, is the possibility of that happening a reason to block a merger? I mean, it might be an antitrust violation once they did it, if they did it. But is it is it a reason to block the merger? And that I'm not so sure about. If you can't really find a, a horizontal or a vertical theory of harm that sticks, I'm not sure that they have the legal basis to block the merger. But that doesn't mean that the regulators aren't going to take a long, hard look at this deal before they let it go through. 
it is Broadcom after all. <laughs> That's right. Look, Natalie, thank you so much for getting into the detail of this deal. It's it's truly complicated stuff. It's great having you in Brussels on the case. Well, thank you very much. It's my pleasure. Natalie McNeilis reports on M&A from our offices in Brussels. And Natalie's analysis of this deal, written with Curtis Eichelberger from the US, is online and ready for you to read right now. Our website address remains the same, mlexmarketinsight.com. That's M-L-E-X marketinsight.com. Just click on the News Hub tab for all of the latest reporting and analysis from the MLEX team around the globe. And on the front page, you'll also see a link to our special report on Russian sanctions. This was truly a labour of love from our anti-bribery and corruption financial services and energy reporters, and it's arguably the best wrap of the measures imposed on Russia as a result of the invasion of Ukraine. Now, arguably, obviously, I am indeed making that argument. Coming up, how Glencore plans to put a $1 billion fine behind it and why the story isn't over yet. You can subscribe to MLEX's weekly podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify and Stitcher. James Paniki with you. It's great to be here. Now, global mining giant Glencore and several of its subsidiaries have admitted to paying over 100 million US dollars in bribes in a number of foreign countries, and the Swiss-based company has agreed to pay $1 billion worth of penalties. So is it all over? Well, no, it still has some way to run, with criminal investigations underway in some jurisdictions. And while the penalties are indeed hefty, they're not going to be fatal, which raises the usual question, are foreign bribery penalties merely the cost of doing business abroad? The MLEX analysis of this story looks at both the bribery and the fallout. It was penned by Martin Coyle in London and Samuel Rubenfeld in New York, and both of them join me now for a quick update. Now, Martin, starting from you, maybe firstly just walk us through the developments on the UK side. Hi, James. So, yes, at Westminster Magistrates Court, uh, a Glencore unit uh, in the UK called Glencore Energy UK indicated uh, through its lawyers that it intended to plead guilty uh, to paying millions of dollars in in bribes in Africa. Uh, And this was part of this coordinated global settlement action with um, US and Brazilian prosecutors. Uh, So in the the UK, in total, there are seven different counts. Uh, Five of these relate to allegations of bribery involving contracts in Nigeria, Cameroon, and the Ivory Coast. Uh, And these amount to about $25 million dollars worth of bribery payments, according to prosecutors. And also, the company is charged with um, two counts of failing to prevent bribery. Uh, That's under Section 7 of the UK's Bribery Act in South Sudan and Equatorial Guinea. Uh, So this all relates to misconduct dating back to 2011 uh, and ending in 2016. Uh, And this follows a serious fraud office investigation that started in 2019. So it's been a relatively quick turnaround for the prosecutor and it's uh, generated some much needed good news for the SFO. Mm. However, there are still some unresolved issues for Glencore in Europe. Tell me something about those and what's happening next. Yes. uh, So what happens next? So lawyers in the company will next appear at Southwark Crown Court in London on June the 21st, where the company will be sentenced. 
Now, it's likely it will have to pay tens of millions of pounds in fines. Um, it's unclear how, exactly how much that'll be. But Glencore indicated earlier, earlier this year that it's set aside $1.5 billion to cover all of the issues. That's the UK, US and Brazil. Uh, now, it's paid about, it's indicated it's going to pay about $1.1 billion to, to settle those US issues. So that leaves some money aside to cover the um the UK side of things. Now, it's got revenues of about $200 billion a year. So it should survive all these these um, allegations and these um, prosecutions. So aside from the, the, the UK, uh, it still faces investigations in Switzerland and the Netherlands. The Swiss Attorney General's office uh, is conducting two criminal investigations, and that, those are both connected with um, raw materials. So one of the probes, uh, one of the probes relates to uh, unspecified individuals suspected of bribery, uh, and the second uh, is connected with Glencore International and the, and uh, uh, corporate criminal liability. Uh, and as I said, there's also a Dutch investigation that uh, continues. Now, if we turn back to the UK, attention will now focus on whether the SFO will charge individuals linked to Glencore. Um, now, the SFO told MLEX that uh, that investigation uh, continues. Uh, so that's something to watch out for, James, uh, and that could potentially generate some more unwelcome headlines uh, for Glencore. All right, uh, Sam, let me bring you into the conversation here. Uh, Glencore has made news where you are in the US for quite some time now. I mean, even before it began acquiring uh, billions of dollars worth of mines in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Tell me something about that background. Sure. So um, the company in its uh, guilty plea admitted to conduct all over Africa and Latin America. Um, and though that conduct has generated headlines for years, um, the details of what Glencore was, acu- uh, was doing was all buried in U.S. court records. Uh, most of it concerned bribes to secure oil business in West Africa um, Glencore and its UK subsidiaries paid more than $52 million in bribes in Nigeria alone. Uh, certain senior executives had approved those payments, and the whole the bribery there earned about $124 million in profits, according to a statement of facts attached to the company's plea deal. Um, they, in the Nigeria context, the subsidiaries used coded language to conceal their communications, referring to the bribery as, quote, newspapers, journals, or pages. Um, in one case, a commodity trader with the company pleaded guilty in July of last year. In addition to all of this, uh, Glencore also admitted in U.S. court that it was rigging global oil markets through the, uh, the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, or a separate regulatory agency. The market rigging also generated an individual guilty plea last year. And how did the company's dealings in the Democratic Republic of Congo in particular come to light? Sure. Uh, so, James, there's quite a bit on, uh, relating to Glencore's activity in the, in the Democratic Republic of Congo. In the U.S. court documents, the company admitted to paying $27.5 million to third parties, much of which went to reduce a government audit in that country and uh, to pay a bribe to a judge to help make a contract dispute disappear. However, what didn't appear in the U.S. court documents was plenty more that's publicly known about what the company was doing there. It had partnered with a guy named Dan Gertler, who had a, a very tawdry reputation. Gertler is an Israeli billionaire diamond magnate. Um, he was 
sanctioned by the U.S. Treasury Department in 2017 for amassing a fortune through corrupt mining deals in the Democratic Republic of Congo by exploiting his relationship with the then-ruling Kabila family. The current government of the country is unwinding its ties to Dan Gertler, but Glencore, in an attempt to distance itself from Gertler, bought him out of his shares of the, the Congolese mining interests that they had shared. However, in order to secure those mining share interests in the first place, it had secretly loaned Dan Gertler $45 million, according to media reports in 2017, that cited a leak known as the Paradise Papers. He had been called in multiple times by Glencore to deal with the authorities in the DRC over a mine that had been stuck in negotiations over a joint venture deal with a state mining firm. The deal eventually went through and Gertler kept his interest. And uh, Glencore, when uh, all of this was revealed, said the loan to Gertler was made on, quote, commercial terms. And that mine is among the projects up for negotiation, renegotiation, as the current government negotiates uh, or reviews deals made under the, the Kabila regime from several years back. Sam, Dan Gertler sounds like a fairly colourful character. What do you make of him and uh, why is he such a controversial figure in the US? To be frank, Dan Gertler deserves his own podcast (laughs) and we should spend a whole long time discussing it in another forum. But suffice it to say, he made his bones uh, mining diamonds and all sorts of other things in Central Africa, especially in the Democratic Republic of Congo. The sanctions placed upon him in 2017 have been a big bone of contention. He's tried to fight to get them removed, uh, including by enlisting allies in the former Trump administration. The administration uh, lifted part of those sanctions temporarily in a bit of a secret deal at the end of the Trump administration, but the Biden administration reversed that. And uh, I can go longer, but I'm not going to belabor the point here. I'm sure he's got good uh, lawyers there, Sam, so maybe maybe that's a good time. (laughs) Yes, indeed. Look, Martin and Sam, thank you so much for joining me uh, today. Really appreciate it. It's a fascinating uh, story to be following. Thank you. Thanks, James. Martin Coyle and Samuel Rubenfeld cover anti-bribery and corruption. Martin from London and Sam from New York. And their analysis of the Glencore developments is online and ready for you to read. mlexmarketinsight.com. That's mlexmarketinsight.com and click on the News Hub tab. And that's it for today's podcast. Let me thank you for tuning in. We'll be back in your feed on Friday, so I very much hope to see you then. From me, James Paniki, and everyone here at MLEX and LexisNexis, thank you very much for your company. Bye for now. Bye for now.